Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dave, your host. So, yeah, this has been a tough week. For people who are in the Shambhala community or uh, in any way allied with the Shambhala community, they may have experienced the tumult, bewilderment of the uh, allegations of sexual misconduct, sexual assault, frankly, that have been uh, uh, coming out in the past uh, few weeks, but particularly this particular week. So in that context, this uh, particular podcast it's from a talk that was recorded at our weekly Dharma gathering uh, this past Tuesday. This was the day that uh, Sakang Mipam Rinpoche issued a, a letter. Sakang Mipam Rinpoche, the head of the Shambhala Buddhist lineage, offered a letter about his uh, conduct. And uh, uh, But before uh, later revelations came out later in the week. So uh, this talk by Shante Smalls uh, I found to be uh, particularly uh, soothing and uh, I hope you'll find, I hope you'll find that it has some benefit for you as well. It's all about holding space when you just want to shut down, when you just want to get angry or curl up into a ball or whatever your particular style is. How do you just feel what you're feeling? And why, why is that even uh, desirable? I mean, what's that going to do, really? Shanti Spons, as you know, is a regular contributor to the podcast and... Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think this talk you'll find particularly applicable, uh, regardless of the specific situation. Now you may be listening to this podcast a year from now, and you may have no particular investment in Shambhala specifically. You just uh, like this meditation podcast, which is great. If your particular inspiration at this time draws you to deeper practice, to more intensive practice, the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York is presenting. It's annual Meditation in the City Retreat. Yes, the Meditation in the City Retreat is happening this August, from August 17th to the 24th. It's a week of meditation. If you can't do the whole week, you can sign up just for the whole weekend or by the day. It is a series of uh, day-long practice days interspersed with talks, just like the talks you hear on this podcast, and opportunities to meet one-on-one with a meditation instructor, uh, as part of the faculty, Nick Kranz is leading the uh, retreat, Shastri Nick Kranz. If you haven't met him, he's a great guy, full heart. I highly recommend experiencing what you can of this retreat. The early bird special is ending this coming week. Sign up now and save 100 bucks. For more information and to register, go to ny.shambhala.org. Click the link on the homepage for Meditation in the City Retreat. Okay, from a talk uh, this past Tuesday at our weekly Dharma gathering, here is Dr. Shante Smalls. So the original topic for this talk was about, um, it's not completely unrelated, it was about uh, working with the principles of body, speech, and mind, and why we would even do that and be interested in that. and how practice can help us relate to 
what we say, how we say, when we say it, what we do with our bodies, um, and how to you know work with the the mind, building stability, clarity, and strength. But I uh, honestly. Um, felt compelled to respond specifically to um, a letter that uh, our teacher, my teacher, Sakyong Vipar Rinpoche, sent out last night um, in relation to um, harm he's recognized and caused in romantic relationships or sexual relationships in the past. And I thought about the conversations I've been having with people uh, since Friday night and um, other students and teachers in Shambhala and friends and um, how precious it is to hold space as a f way of healing um, and that I'd like to just offer that tonight and the, that my practice and the practice of others is actually a, exactly what needs to be engaged when I'm hurting. So I'll just say a little bit about um, practice. So I have a habitual pattern of, um, since I was young, when I'm having emotions, which I've always had some aversion to. Well, feeling good is an emotion I like. And sometimes anger is an emotion I, I enjoy. But um, when uh, I'm feeling challenged by living and by the certain vicissitudes of life, um, I usually engage in some kind of self, these days it's usually some kind of self-denial, but in the past it was often some very egregious form of self-harm. And um, partly through meditation and through other you know, help, and other communities have been able to see more and more clearly this pattern. So what I do now is like, uh, I'll be feeling bad and I'll like stay up really late. But I'm older now so I have to force myself to stay up late. And I'm like falling asleep at 1.30. I'm like, no, you're gonna play this video game. This is what I did last night. You're gonna play this video game. Or um, skipping meals is something I do sometimes, but also not practicing sometimes. And usually it's not more than a day, and then I start to feel really badly. <laughs> but it's, I was thinking about that because I was really struck this weekend. I didn't want to practice, and uh, that was OK. I didn't want to formally practice, but I was 
working my way back to it. I was doing lots of lasangs, burning juniper on charcoal, and I was lighting my shrine, and I was just trying to keep my heart and my mind open to so many things I don't understand. And I was reading, and I happened to be reading, rereading um, Pema Chodron's The Places That Scare You, a guide to fearlessness in difficult times for course I'm teaching. And um, I haven't read this particular book in a very long time, and I, um, it's really dealing with um, interpreting the kind of the traditional Buddhist bodhisattva path for more for our contemporary society, but and practitioners. But um, there were so many things that she said that are. Um, just want to read. There are both formal and informal methods for helping us to cultivate bravery and kindness. There are practices for nurturing our capacity to rejoice, to let go, to love, and to shed a tear. There are those that teach us to stay open to uncertainty. There are others that help us to stay present at the times that we habitually shut down. Wherever we are, we can train as a warrior. And here, warrior is not about waging war or aggression or um, colonizing, but it's about the bravery and the confidence and the gentleness and the strength to be present with your own now and to keep your heart open when everything is saying to engage in that habitual pattern. Do you know what I mean? Does that, does that make sense? When everything is saying reach for the shutdown or reach for the thing or do the thing. And I think particularly for me with, um, there are a lot of really fun ways to turn off like my partner has pointed out that I go to my phone a lot when I don't want to listen. I was like, no, I don't. And it's like right in my hand, you know? <clears throat> so uh, over the weekend, uh, we were, my partner and I were talking, and I was, and I was crying a lot, and um, and then it was pride, and I didn't feel very engaged. And we went out, and it's like, okay, dancing always helps. That's good. And uh, eating good food was good. And then um, there's some family stuff going on with my partner's family. And um, so yesterday they were, we were talking, and they were sharing with me and crying and was so tender, so open, and um, an hour later we got into a fight. And I can't tell you how that happened, you know? And it was, you know, it was unpleasant. And I could feel myself being unable to hold the space. I couldn't, I just didn't want to. 
I was just like, oh yeah, you know, and um, I could feel the sadness and the tenderness of us both, um, but it was like, um, my lizard brain took over or something. The mean me came out, you know? And I felt a sense of, it was like I could see, but I couldn't, it was like I was like locked in a box. And then we had a very tender conversation um, about that and what I realized was like, um, holding space is actually really advanced because there's nothing in my you know familial life uh, that was ever about holding space i often tell this story to friends um my mom used to try to we used to have family nights on thursday nights and you know you know where the story is going to end um we would play Monopoly <laughs> and you know have pizza or whatever, and um, it would always end with someone flipping the Monopoly board. I don't know what that was about, and other people were like, yeah, that happened in my family. So I was like, what? Who? Where? We're flipping the, you know, you cheated. And I'm like, it's a game. It's like not real money, and um, somehow it ended with, um, you know, chaos and kind of lack of communication and um, unable to hold space for each other and unable to deal with whatever feelings playing this game of capitalism brought up, you know, uh, <laughs> for, for us. And uh, instead it was like habitual patterns, you know. And I think we live in a country in particular where um, violence is rewarded and lack of communication is rewarded and is seen as kind of, it's like gendered in this weird way and masculinized and seen, is seen as, as mistaken for strength when it's really an incredible weakness not being able to stay with a situation and instead having to impose our will on something or impose a narrative even. And I think it's easy to have this be theoretical when it's maybe a situation that's far away from us and we can say, oh, this is wrong, this is right. But what do we do when it's so close, when a friend or a loved one harms us or someone else? A friend of mine is, is here tonight, one of my closest and oldest friends We've known each other since we were teenagers and um, she once said this thing to me about uh, her clients that um, uh, no person is defined or as bad as the worst thing they've ever done. And that really struck me as a very bodhisattva, as a very warrior-esque view that it's easy to um, say this person harmed someone, this person was harmed, and that's the end of the story. It's hard to hold 
the person who has harmed their rage and their anger and confusion. And it's really hard to hold a perpetrator and their own confusion. And so I, I just want to offer meditation as not an escape, right? Or as turning away from the certain violences and joys of life, but actually a way as a path and a practice to actually engage those things. And it actually gives us the ability to mourn and cry and be angry without then causing harm ourselves. Or if we cause harm, being able to take responsibility for that, to see it and to say, I was wrong, I hurt you. How can I be different? Or here's what I offer. Is that something that resonates for people maybe? Or does it does that seem like no, that's stupid and I I wanna I want vengeance or and I think, you know, sometimes in um our interpretation in the West of the Dharmic message, we or I hear a lot in my own past misunderstandings have been that meditation, Buddhism, the Dharma, whatever, is somehow about escape or about being not a human or about being above hu petty human emotions. But what made the historical Buddha, Buddha Shakyamuni, so made him the Buddha was that he tapped into his humanity. He did not run away from the truth of humanity that we were born, that we age, that we get sick and we die, and along the way they're suffering. And then instead of trying to find the elixir of the fountain of youth, it was like, I'm gonna sit with that reality and see what that does, and it woke him up. And he shared that with other beings. And that's been passed out unbroken to us. And what it doesn't mean is that we roll over when injustice or harm happens and we just retreat to our cushion or to our meditation centers or to a retreat. At least that doesn't mean that for me, but what it does mean is that I have some space to let the whole orchestra of emotions arise. And then action comes down the road somewhere, you know? I'm a very karma, I'm a very action-oriented person, right? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I've been really graced in the last number of years to really tap into the wisdom of accommodation, which is, and I'm looking at one of the most famous um, Himalayan teachers in the back there, Yeshe Sogyal on the Tonka. And sometimes even in our own tradition here, we forget about 
we lessen or don't appreciate the power of the feminine principle, not, and not, and not meaning women, but meaning uh, energetically, which we all have, feminine, masculine, which is about accommodation. So without space, action without space is aggression. Just acting all the time without any kind of thoughtfulness or contemplation or gestation is very dangerous. At the same time, space without any action is ignorance or laziness. So, but we're in a situation, I think our societal karma is more towards aggression. It's not proactive, it's just active. Thoughtless action. Because that feels very powerful, right? Someone did something to me, I'm gonna do something to them. And it's been portrayed to us, communicated to us that pausing is weakness. When I came to Shambhala, I was in my 20s. And um, I had been practicing meditation on and off since I was about 16, 17. And I um, didn't know it, but I had an incredible amount of self-reliance. And um, when I started to engage uh, the community I was in before, the meditation community I was in before I came to Shambhala, I began to really um, appreciate, uh, I've always enjoyed groups, but I also felt like um, I was a precocious kid. And so there was always part of me that felt I was the smartest person in the room. And um, there was a lot of arrogance that really was just fear mixed with youthful know-it-allism. And when I came to Shambhala, uh, Catherine, who's in the back, was the co-executive director. And there was, um, it was a little bit here and elsewhere, a split between what was then the old Sangha, the students of the Vijata of Chogam Chimpurvuche, and the new Sangha, the Young Bucks. And um, and it seemed like an insurmountable chasm. Because when I would talk to older teachers, all they would do, and students, all they would do is regale me with stories of Rinpoche, you know, who died when I was a child. And um, I was like, this is great, but this is also a little weird, you know? And um, it felt like that could never be mended or crossed. And uh, that's not the case anymore. There's not, I mean, there's some outliers and there's some um, 
communities where that's a little bit more felt, but it's really changed. And not through people saying, you must change how you think, old student, or you must change how you think, young student, but through practice, through conversations, through disagreement, through misunderstanding, through taking space, maybe away from the center, through going on retreat. For me, I moved out of New York for work and I didn't have a center near me. It was one two hours east and one two hours west. So I would call in to one of the centers two hours west uh, east a couple of times during the week and practice with them at seven o'clock in the morning. And I would have Skype sessions with my MI to feel connected. And I really began to miss the irritating Sangha when it was no longer available to me. I was like, oh, I miss that weird person who's always there, you know? I wanna see them. And then I moved out west for a year and I was in the Sangha in Albuquerque and they were so cute. And um, they would go out to lunch once a month after the open, can you imagine us all going out to dinner after this? That would be so adorable. I don't know where we would go, but um, <laughs> McDonald's, I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, but um, once a month we would go out to uh, brunch together on Sundays after the open house. And it was so beautiful and so genuine. And um, when I moved back to New York in 2014, I didn't recognize this place not because they had remodeled it, because I'd come back and forth, but because it felt so warm. It felt so different. And I loved, when I walked in, it was kind of cold and mean. I was like, love it. Awesome, you know? No one bothered me. No one tried to sell me anything. And I could just come and sit. But um, the warmth and the tenderness and the kind of community feeling was so beautiful. and that happened over time through practice, both as individuals and community, and through a lot of heartache, too. So I'm someone who's a true believer. I believe absolutely that basic goodness is real, and it's the fundamental reality that we're always trying to get back to. And I believe in the group expression of basic goodness, which is enlightened society. And for me, enlightened society means it's a society where we deal with the ways that human beings are shitty or thoughtless or ignorant or harmful with heartful, sometimes wrathful, compassionate, wise responses. We don't throw anyone away. We don't excuse anyone. No one is above the Dharma. No one is above karmic law. But we don't say some people are worthy and some people aren't. And that's so hard for me. I'm such a like good, bad, you know, person. I'm such a, like, me other. 
But as I prepare to You know, we're all gonna die. And how do I wanna live, you know? Uh, is, is always the question I come back to. And I can't anymore shake um, I don't have a choice in whether or not I want to be a practitioner. I mean, I do, but I don't. And if that sounds vague, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you more individually about that. But it's just to say that it's the path that's, that's the reality for me. And we each have to individually decide how we want to live this life, you know. Hi, so you spoke a little bit at, during the beginning of the talk about holding your space in, in moments when you don't want to hold your space. Could you talk a little bit about that kind of experience for you? Okay. In terms of what it feels like? Sure, yeah. <laughs> So I could say, maybe call to mind a situation that's difficult for you right now. I'll do the same. And maybe feel what arises in your heart center. And maybe it's not a conceptual thing, but it's just a feeling, maybe it's warmth or a color or a feeling of tenderness, sad joy or something like that. And then sometimes what happens is that the mind, which is not the same thing as the brain, sometimes is habituated to s categorize feeling, just that feeling of kind of tenderness as something that needs to be narrated or shaped a particular way. And so it's like the mind is a problem solver, sometimes a problem maker. And it takes that just raw material of tenderness and it's like, or the heat of the anger, the energy of anger, or the energy of sadness or the energy of confusion and it narrates it into a really um, powerful weapon, shapes it into a weapon so that we can defend. And spaciousness is kind of the opposite of that. It's, it's not um, ignorance and it's not checking out, but it's staying with that feeling and kind of seeing what happens when we just stay. Um, and sometimes we cry, sometimes we feel it more deeply, sometimes we realize something. Instead of going to um, attack mode or kind of, oh, now I know what that is and okay, I'm gonna address it this way. It's, sometimes we actually just need um, to engage feeling first before we engage doing. 
Does that make sense? Yes, so you're saying it's basically staying with that energetic quality rather than trying to narrate over the energetic quality and, right. and maybe jumping at somebody in a conversation rather than staying with the, the stuff that you're feeling while they're talking? That's right, and it's hard sometimes because sometimes what someone is saying to you, the way that it's hitting us, we, it hurts or we don't like it or it's, and, and, I, and I mean in a situation that's not dangerous, right? I'm not talking about someone like putting a knife to our neck or something like that. I'm, you know, that's, that's different, like run away, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> But uh, don't stay. <laughs> but I'm, I'm talking about when you're, you know, particularly when you care about someone and there's misunderstanding and all you can feel is the hurt and then you start to shut down because it, you're hurt, right? And that's, that's a natural reaction of any sentient being to protect. But I think what humans do, because we have this highly developed brain, it actually can um, cover over a kind of wisdom that's arising in that hurt and say, oh, now this person's my enemy. This person's hurting me. Or we confuse it with things that happened in the past. This is just like person X. And so with person X, I had to do Y. So I need to do Y in this situation. And sometimes when we just stay, it's like we feel vulnerable. And that feels so scary. But there's wisdom that arises from that place. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for your question. My question is about dealing with the inner critic when you've harmed someone. Mm. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Can you say more? <laughs> um, like knowing the middle between recognizing that you've caused harm and not beating yourself up about it. Yeah. So it's tricky because I think the inner critic is a very sophisticated, is self-centeredness in disguise, disguised as contrition or something, because it, we just bring the focus right back to us. We've forgotten, we've caused harm, and then we're like, oh my goodness, I'm so terrible, me, 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 and we've forgotten about the person who's actually been harmed. <laughs> it's like, they don't matter. Um, I remember once when I was early in doing Shambhala training and a teacher said, um, he said, we're the star of our own movie. I was like, whoa. And he's like, everyone else is just, you know, not even supporting actors, like back, like scenery, you know what I mean? <laughs> B-roll. And then it's like, you're, you're someone's B-roll, you know what I mean? And so um, I thought about like all of us walking around where everyone else is like scenery and B-roll, you know? So um, <laughs> I really identify with that. Um, I think it's, there's a, qualitative difference between like, oh, I see what I did, and going to the person if and when the time is right, because sometimes maybe they don't want to talk to us. Maybe it's too tender. But in saying, you know, I was wrong, or I see where, this is what I did. Not just like, I'm sorry. Okay, is everything good? You know, but um, I'm sorry I hurt you. Even if you, you know, 
I don't understand exactly what happened, but I, I know I hurt you with my behavior or how I, what I said. And then I think we have to have a, apply a little discipline to not fall into um, being seduced back into our love affair with ourselves. Because it's like so easy to think about ourselves, you know what I mean? It's just like, I spend most of the time thinking about me. And, um, and it's hard to really turn your mind to someone else and really think about, particularly when you've, you know you've done something to harm them. Um, so first, the holding the space is just that, it's holding our seat, sometimes we say, too, you know? It's like, when you, you know when you first started meditating, I don't know if this was the case for some people, but I'd be like, oh, I've, I left the stove on. Now, I never <laughs> had those thoughts before, you know, but it was like, I, every day I left the stove on, you know, I like jump up and I was like, okay, I didn't leave the stove on, or oh, what are the dogs? Peeing, you know, and it was, you know, and it was like I couldn't hold my seat. The energy that I was feeling in my body felt like too much to just sit. I had to do something. And over time, um, there's very little that can get me, you know, sometimes I have to go to the bathroom, but there's very little that can get me up from my seat. And I think it's similar with holding space. You know, at first it feels so unnatural. And it feels like I have to do something. I have to... Um, but sometimes it's just like, there's a really nice saying that's like sometimes it's just restraint of pen and tongue. We just shut up and wait <laughs> and say it later or differently. And it's hard, you know, email, it's like, they call it petty fingers, you know, the keyboard. Just saying things on the internet or on email or on text is so easy. And then nothing ever dies in those spaces. And so I think, you know, the inner critic we can turn that into the inner, um, the inner like reflector. You know, the person who reflects rather than sinks into self-centeredness. You know, who says, "Oh," and then we have to also let it go. Maybe that person can't hear my apology. Maybe I'm, you know, on their asshole list forever, and I just have to accept that. Thank you for making me laugh, by the way, I needed that. <laughs> okay, good. You're welcome. Um, I, thank you also for hosting this evening. I, I mean, this is the best I felt in the past week. Um, mm. I, I really appreciate you um, hosting this theme and, and sharing with us your lessons. Um, I think for me, I, I'm not exactly quite sure how to frame this question, but I, given that this is a safe space, what drew me to coming tonight was the theme where um, you know, and, and unfortunately, in my job itself, I am dealing with a series of microaggressions and forms of more blatant sexual harassment. And from somebody so senior that it's actually, I'm in fear of the repercussions of my career mm. um, and my trajectory mm. um, that I don't feel comfortable reporting it to. Mm an HR division that's there to protect the company when I'm so low in the ranks. And we've gone so far with the Me Too movement and we've changed practices in, in you know, most Fortune 500 companies and, and nonprofits and other organizations. Um, but there's still some 
uh, ways we need to go, and I'm learning it right now, where you, you face either these microaggressions or you understand certain power dynamics that are inherent and you, you can't quite you know, go up against that. And it's yeah. caused me a lot of anxiety. Um, yeah. And uh, I think for me, I, I guess my question is, being so proud of how far we've come and realizing that there's a lot more to go and trying to reconcile how to find more peacefulness and less anxiety in my life is, what would your advice be? You know, is it practicing more? Is it trusting, you know, eventually if I protect myself and if I keep mm -hmm. my head down, I hate saying that, um, things will be okay in the end because I am not doing anything wrong necessarily. I, I don't know how to reconcile it and I think, when I meditate, I think about those things, and it brings me peace, but then that anxiety comes yeah. back as I return to my reality, so. Well, I think there's some things I might say to you offline, since this is being recorded. Um, but there's a reason there's human resources, lawyers, laws. <laughs> Because um, there are structure, there are things that are structural that we encounter as individuals that are actually more than we can handle individually, and those structures are actually set up to make us feel disempowered, or that it's just us, or gaslit, like we're crazy, or just take it because of the repercussions. From a practice perspective, I would say that there's nothing that I've ever seen in any teachings that is that says, oh, roll over and let yourself be harmed. That's what a real practitioner would do. That's, that's the opposite of the message. I think um, there's wisdom in um, seeking the collective help and the, um, the kind of wisdom of uh, people who've gone, gone before you with this, you know, who've trailblazed when there were no laws or there wasn't really human resources, or there wasn't protection for employees. So we don't use our practice to escape our reality, but in fact to tap into our wisdom to say, what do I need to do for me? And maybe that is, okay, lay low and, or maybe that's something else. But there's only one reality. And we, slowly tap into that through practice. I mean, there's many realities, but there's not like one life over here and one life over there. There's, you know, there's one you that has to engage with what's appearing in front of you. So practice is never about harming yourself. It's never about um, making yourself smaller or invisible or, it's really about discovering your um, touching into your inherent intelligence and wisdom and strength.
And, um, and it's certainly not about accepting and condoning abuse. And I think that, um, that that gets very confusing for people. I often say this when I teach, so I apologize if you heard it, but particularly in the Indo-Tibetan, Indo-Hamalian traditions of Buddhism, we have images of protectors who are wrathful, who have skulls and sharp daggers and because they are the, um, sometimes situations call for a kind of more um, loving compassion and sometimes a more wrathful compassion. So there's, there's a, this skillful means of the four karmas, which is pacifying, magnetizing, enriching, and destroying. So we always start with pacifying, calming ourselves and the situation. But sometimes um, it can, we can also, it, we also need to take action that can be conceived as destroying, not as killing, but as um, breaking up harmful patterns, right? So there are different skills and different approaches for different situations. Um, so, you know, you have a right to feel safe in your work environment. It's work, you know, it's not um, the club. You have a right to feel safe in the club, you know? And um, sometimes power blinds people to their humanity and other people's humanity, and all they can see is what their power, what they think makes available to them. I know there are some lawyers in the room, so. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, yeah, you know, practice is not meant to make us small and scared, but rather to help us hold our, our seat. So I want to thank you all for being here. Um, and if you would like, you certainly don't have to. I invite you to. Um, do you need the? Do you have a mic uh, announcement? Okay. We can end with a bow, and the bow is really not about bowing to anything that's above us, but it's actually about, for me at least acknowledging and touching into what we've done here tonight. Honoring our good hearts. It doesn't have to have any more mystical meaning than that. But you don't have to bow if you don't want to. Thank you and please enjoy the vittles. Thank you so much, Shante Smalls. And thank you all for listening to the podcast. Uh, visit our website, my.chambala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats, in particular our seven-day retreat, the uh, Meditation in the City retreat, is happening in August. Check it out. 
Email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org. Your questions, comments, suggestions. If you happen to live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. But if you are in the New York City area, come to our weekly Dharma gathering. It's every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Meet your fellow meditators. Form, uh, join the community. It's great. Okay, later.